0: To everything, there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. If you look in your bulletin, the the title of my message today is A Time of Grace. You ever kind of got upset at someone because they were being just extremely wasteful? I have to say that's kind of one of my pet peeves. When people throw away food. Now, you wouldn't tell it by looking at me, but I like food. And, and I see these people sometimes and you're at a cafeteria and they go through the cafeteria line and they've taken like everything and they got their plate this high and you're like, they can't possibly eat that. And then you, you watch them kind like, are they really going to eat that? And sure enough, about half of that plate goes in the garbage can after about 10 minutes. You're like, man. You, you ever seen that? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. You, you know what I'm talking about. One time, not too long ago, I came home from work and I heard this sound. I knew what it was as soon as I heard it, the sound of running water. And I went and looked, and sure enough, the faucet was running, and no one was home, and no one had been home all day, and the faucet was running. And I have to say, we have one of these cheap faucets, and if you, if you just push it down, it doesn't turn the water off, and you've got to, like, fiddle with it to get the water to turn off. So, so uh, it's easy to see how, but anyway, it was running. Not only was it running, but it was the hot water that was running. So I ran in there, and I turned the water off, and I'm sitting there. Trying to do the math, calculate how much electricity did that? you know, How much? How much? How much is it going to add to my water bill and my electric bill? And it probably didn't really add that much because it was only running a little bit. But just the thought that I've wasted that much water and that much electricity, heating it all up just to run down the drain when no one's home, wasting things. And there's people who are intentionally wasteful. Well, maybe not intentionally, but it seems like to us they're wasteful. And then there's the people. I mean, they're they are not just rich, but they're like made of money. You ever heard the term filthy rich? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You see them on TV, you know, playing golf. They're on a different continent about every other week. they got 10 cars in the garage, but they really don't need any of them because they couldn't be bothered to drive anywhere anyhow. They just get to their, you know, their little Learjet and they fly wherever they're going to go and have the limo, pick them up at the airport, you know. <laughs> and you're thinking... Man, in the amount of money they spend in one day, one day, I could retire. <laughs> now, I'm not here to talk about social inequality. That's talk for another time and probably not for church. But, you know, we, we can make some assumptions about people, whether they're justified or not. I don't know tr- if, they're, if that's true, but, but we can make some assumptions about people when we see them living like that. And one of those assumptions is if they're so free with money today, it's probably because they've got lots and lots of money in the bank or in an investment account or in, in whatever they do, real estate or whatever it is, they got far more money that they're not spending if they could be so free with money today. Because they're not going to spend that money and run out tomorrow. They have an overabundance of resources. To spend money on things unnecessarily would indicate that you have plenty of money. At least it would seem to me. To spend resources unnecessarily would indicate that there is no shortage of those resources. Now, we think about that, of course, and we think about people who are extra, extra wealthy, but that's probably not any of us here today. But, you know, that phenomenon isn't specific to people who are wealthy in in monetary terms. I was thinking about trees, for example. You know, there are places in this world where a piece of wood is a precious commodity. There are places where trees just do not grow unless you can afford to somehow bring water in to this desert place and grow trees. And people, who are normal people, will build their houses out of stone or maybe out of mud bricks. And if you're extra wealthy, maybe you could bring wood in from some other place and build a. exorbitant house out of wood a precious commodity and here in McRae county i chop down trees if i want to have a garden i got to chop down i don't know how many trees to have a garden and i chop them up and we grind them in bits and we make charcoal out of them and we chop up big oak trees that people could make a a set of cabinets out of we chop them up into firewood and burn them to heat our homes we waste them because we have too many of them right we have an abundance of trees. Trees are not a, anything, I mean, like how many trees do you have in your yard? Well, I don't know, probably 10 million, I don't know. <laughs> we don't value them, hardly, because there's so many of them. It kind of comes down to a matter of perspective, in a way. You know, when I look at the world around us, I see so much Abundance. Look at a flower. Uh, Megan was talking about that. What was it, a, a lily, Megan? A violet. Megan was talking about that violet. Why is a violet beautiful? Why is it colorful? What purpose does it serve for itself to be colorful? Well, yeah, it attracts the pollinators and attracts the bees to come in, but it didn't have to be quite so beautiful in order to get the job done. It has an abundance of resources and that it can expend on an unnecessary beauty. We hear this we wake up and we hear the sound, the song of the birds singing in the treetops. And they sing all of the time. Now I know they, they sing probably to attract a maid, or maybe to warn off others out of their territory. That's functions to their singing, but but singing all of the time, all day. There's some birds that sing all night, and I wish they wouldn't sing all night. But singing, why, why such an abundance of display? And everywhere we look, whether it's the beauty of a sunset, or the beauty of the ocean, or the beauty of the trees, we see an abundance of beauty. More than would be necessary just to, to sustain life. In all of creation, we see an excess of abundance. Turn with me, humor me for a moment, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And I won't read this chapter, we don't have time, but we'll go, kind of go through some of this. When God created the world, it says in Genesis chapter 1 that the earth was without form and void. There was a vast, unlimited, unbounded space an excess, an infinity of space, no confinement, and a boundless, infinite darkness. Until God spoke these words, Let there be light. Not a little bit of light. Not like a little flashlight shining out in the darkness. Not a street lamp. No, not even a floodlight. But a supernatural light. A light that was capable of filling the entire universe with light. And yet this light did not fill the entire universe because it says there that he created a separation between light and darkness. And God saw the light in verse 4 that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness. And he called the light day and in the darkness he called night. You see, God creates in an abundance. And then he sets a boundary. On the first day of creation, God creates this immense space which we call the heaven and set a boundary between light and darkness. On the second day, he created an immense firmament, the sky overhead, the air that we breathe and the abundance of water beneath and made a boundary between the two. Then, on the third day, He set a boundary between the sea and the land. He created an immense space of land, continents on the world, and set a boundary along the seashore. This far you shall come, and no farther. He clothed the land with vegetation, an abundance of vegetation, herbs and trees already bringing forth fruit to serve the needs of the animals and of man. In the first three days of creation, God creates the spaces of the heavens above, the sky, the ocean, and the land. Three days. Then follow another three days of creation in which he, in the same order, fills those spaces which he has made. On the fourth day of creation, he takes the space of the immense heavens and places in them lights, The sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night and the stars also. Not only do these give light, but they create another boundary. They create divisions between day and night, between seasons. It says in verse uh, 14, let there be lights in the firmament to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and for years. God creates within the space a continuity of time and the pieces that mark off the demarcations of time that we use even now, down to this day. Then on the, on the uh, fifth day of creation, he fills the next spaces that he has made. The sky the oceans teem with life, birds and fish and great creatures filling the sea. And on the sixth day of creation, Finally, he fills the land that he has created, teeming now with animals. And last but not least, creating the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in his own image. A perfect world, perfectly beautiful, bountifully supplied with all the needs of all of his creation met. A world of abundance, an abundance of resources and an abundance of life. Yes, there is plenty of work still to be done. But first, on this eve of the sixth day of creation, God does something incredibly special. Rather than entering into another work of continuing to mold and form his creation, on the eve of the sixth day, God sets aside one day, one final day, a seventh day, not of work, but of rest. To rest and to simply enjoy the creation that he has made. To revel in the beauty and abundance that he has supplied. To build relationship between God and man. And between man and his fellow man and women. To enjoy the world the brand new world that he has just created. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. You see, friends, in a way, God commands us to rest on the seventh day simply because he has given us an abundance. He has given us an abundance of resources. And he has given us an abundance of time. Enough time that we can take one day each week and spend it not in working, not in toiling for our daily needs, but in sitting back and appreciating who he is. Once creation was finished, God ordained that man should live together with him for eternity. Just as, in the, natural, just as the natural resources that he had created were more than enough to supply man's need, So man's time would be infinite and unlimited. He would live on for an eternity. He need not hurry from place to place to place all the time, seeking his own pleasure. But in one day in seven, he could rest. He must rest in honor of the command that God had given to him, in honor of the day that God had sanctified God did not give to us an unending period of idleness, but a cycle. Six days of work and one day of rest. The seventh day consecrated to the Creator. The Sabbath was designed to be a day of gratitude. A gratitude to God for his abundant blessings and grateful praise for his mighty works. A time of gratitude, But more than that, we shall see shortly the Sabbath would become a time of grace. It would have been so wonderful if the Bible had ended right about Genesis 2, 24 and 25. If that had been the end of the story, it would have been wonderful. But sadly, Genesis 3 follows Genesis 2. And what happens in Genesis 3, any of you? Eve eats... The apple, we say it was an apple. (laughs) We don't know what kind. of. It was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man chooses to sin, to rebel against God. He loses his privilege of living in the Garden of Eden, his ability to eat from the tree of life, and he condemns himself to eternal death. In Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, God cursed the ground. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And we could diverge here and talk about the state of the dead and the Deception that people continue on to live forever and ever in different forms and never really die. But we won't talk about that today because it's very clear from this verse. You are nothing but dust. You were created from dust. And without the breath of life, you are nothing but dust. No longer did we have any right to any of God's blessings. But rather than simply removing mankind from the blighted earth, God continued to pour upon us his blessings. True, he could not bless us in the same way as he did before the fall, but he continued to pour upon us an abundance. Though we were driven away from the tree of life, though we were hidden from the face of God, God's Spirit still remained in the world, and we still could retain at least one gift that had begun in Eden, a gift of time. Now no longer would we experience eternity except through the grace of Christ. No longer would we live forever. But one day in seven was still the Sabbath day. And in all that we lost, we did not lose the blessing given to the seventh day. A day of gratitude, but more than that, a day of grace. And I imagine that every seventh day, Adam and Eve and their children would come back to the gate of the Garden of Eden. They would see there, past the flaming sword, the tree of life, of which they were forbidden ever to eat. And there, on that Sabbath day, Adam and Eve would teach their children and their grandchildren what had happened on that fateful day and the promise that God had given to Eve that one day her descendant, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent who had beguiled her into sin. A time of gratitude, but more than that, a time of grace. Many years later, the people of God would find themselves in terrible, terrible bondage Confined as slaves in the land of Egypt under the tyranny of King Pharaoh. Then God raised up a man. Who was his name? Moses. God raised up a man by the name of Moses to lead the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And God gave them a promise that one day soon they would enter the land of Canaan, the land of rest. This promised rest would be found in a land not of scarcity, but a land of abundance, a land flowing with milk and with honey. Enough food not just to put on the table, but in figuratively flowing down in rivers, an overabundance. No longer would they toil as they did under the taskmasters in the land of Egypt. The books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy tell us of the journeys and wanderings of the children of Israel. Even when they reached the borders of the Promised Land, they rebelled against God and had to turn back into the wilderness. But I I get ahead of myself. Before this time, as they marched out of Egypt, before they arrived in the borders of the Promised Land, they camped below the Mount of Sinai, And on this mountain, God delivered to them his law, his ten commandments. What does God require of you? To live a life in harmony with his will. And right in the heart, in the very center of those ten commandments, what do we find? The Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but in the seventh, The Sabbath. Now, if God had at this time first given to man the Sabbath, why would he have said, Remember? If this was some new thing that he had never told them about before, why would he have used the word remember? Those of you who are parents, if you tell your kids, remember, what do you mean? I have told you before, in other words. And now I'm telling you to remember what I told you before. Had God told them before? Yes. He had told mankind in the Garden of Eden before the fall to keep the Sabbath day. Now the writer of the New Testament epistle of Hebrews takes it even further. A time of gratitude, yes. But let's look at this time of grace. The writer of Hebrews. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter. We were in 1st and 2nd Peter in Sabbath school. So if you were there, you just go back a couple of pages. Hebrews chapter 4. The writer of Hebrews goes over this same story about the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. How they had come out from Egypt, out of bondage, And had received this promise of entering into rest. And Joshua, the the leader who followed Moses, Joshua did lead the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. But as the writer of Hebrews points out in this passage, in the leading up to Hebrews chapter 4, David quotes this verse saying, I will yet lead you into rest. Now David was in the time of the kings many, many, many years later after the time of Moses and Joshua looking forward to another deliverer who would give rest to God's people. And I don't have time to go into all of the exposition. It's a powerful, powerful exposition that Paul is giving here to the Hebrews about how Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the rest of the Sabbath that is given to God's people. But look here in verses uh, Hebrews 4 and verses 9 and 10. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. You see, the Sabbath points backwards to creation. But for the children of Israel, for Adam and Eve after the fall, for everyone who lived up until the time of Christ, the Sabbath pointed forward to an entering into rest that would come when Christ would come and walk on this earth and would die on the cross, not for himself, but for you and for me. Yes, the time is, the Sabbath is a time of gratitude to God for his abundance in creation. But even more, The Sabbath is a symbol of our salvation. Let me ask you this question. How are we saved? Is it by working as hard as we can to keep all of the laws of God? How many of us are going to be saved by works? I can't put up my hand. How many of us are going to be saved by working a little bit harder? How many of us can be saved by the grace of Christ that is without works. Amen? Are we saved by our works? Are we saved by entering into rest? That's what we call not working, right? Resting. And the the writer of Hebrews makes this point so clear in Hebrews chapter 4. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. And I love verse 15 too. For he for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. And find grace to help in time of deep in time of need, if I don't watch, I'll get distracted, and I'll hear sit here and give an exposition on Hebrews. But the point that the writer of Hebrews is making here so clearly the Sabbath is not about works, friends the Sabbath is about rest. I hear other Christians tell me, "Oh you seventh-day Adventists." It's all about works. It's a works-based religion. You're, you're keeping the Sabbath for works, and you think the Sabbath is gonna save you. Well, perhaps there are, there have been Adventists who thought that. I'm sorry, there have been Christians in many times that have been mistaken. But the Sabbath is not about work. The Sabbath, excuse me, the Sabbath is precisely the opposite of work. It's about a rest from work. Symbolizing the rest that we experience in Christ. In knowing that our salvation is secure, that we don't have to work for it, but that we can enter into it by faith in the only one who can provide that atonement. The Sabbath is a time of gratitude. The Sabbath is a time of grace. And last but not least, the Sabbath Is a time of giving. You know, the theory of evolution is in such stark contrast to the biblical account of creation. Have you ever thought about it this way? Evolution teaches us that life arose in this world, in a world of very scarce natural resources. As the first life forms arose millions of years ago, they began to grow and to multiply. They began to diversify and mutate and form different life life forms. I'm telling you the theory of evolution. It's not that I believe the theory of evolution. I hope that's clear. But I'm just kind of explaining to you that that the concept is that these forms of life, it started with a very simple form of life, maybe a little bud of yeast or some, some little simple, quotes, simple, form uh, of, of life, and it started to change and mutate, and pretty soon it grew legs, and some of them came out and walked on land, and some of them turned into fish and swam in the water, and, and so on and so forth, and it's, it's quite an interesting theory when you come to think of it that way, because how do things that are very simple become very complex without some outside intelligent force acting upon them, and I don't quite understand that, but suffice it to say, but that's, that's kind of, in a nutshell, the theory of evolution. As, as these different organisms, and they're differentiating and they're forming different things, as they as they differentiate, they begin to compete with one another for scarce natural resources because there's only so many resources on this earth that could be easily consumed if life continues to multiply uh, and unhindered. So the weaker forms of life then become crowded out by the stronger forms of life. And that's how we get to the survival of the fittest. Darwin's theory of evolution is premised on this theory that the stronger and and therefore better forms of life would crowd out and destroy the weaker or inferior forms of life. Until now we have on this earth, only after millions of years, only the forms of life which are the most advanced and superior because we have, we have um, crowded out the other weaker and inferior forms of life. And that explains all of the diversity that we have on this earth, correct? Well, no. That does not at all explain diversity because if there was one and only one perfect and strong form of life, then we should not have any diversity of life at all on this planet. There should only be one form of life and it would probably look like something like a yeast or an algae because those kinds of... If you ever look at an ecosystem... And you look at, if you get the, the balance of nutrients off just a little bit, a little bit too, too much nitrates or something in the, in the water, for example, and you have what we call an algal, algal bloom. And you, you could have a very complex ecosystem to start with, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands of different forms of life in a small area. And over a very short period of time in an algal bloom, the algae can consume all of the oxygen, All of the natural resources in the water basically obliterate all other life except this algae, which then itself eventually dies once the resources are consumed. How does the theory of evolution and a world of scarcity explain the diversity that we see in the world around us today? If you have an explanation for that, please tell me later because I'm still wondering about that. But I don't have to wonder very long But I do, because I don't believe it. I believe what the Bible teaches, that God created a world, not a world of scarcity, but a world of abundance. If God wanted, if I wanted to, let me just put it this way, if I wanted to put a little dot, a little, pretty little star in the sky, I probably would have gone up about maybe 20 miles up and hung a lantern up there. And it would have been a pretty little star in the sky for everyone to see. Maybe if I was going to be really, really like exu- exorbitant, I would go up 100 miles and put up a great big ball of fire. You know, maybe 50 feet across. And I'd go up 100 miles and there'd be this beautiful star in the sky. God created the stars in the sky. Not millions of miles, but light years, light years. Years, thousands of light years away to beautify the sky for us he made the sun not as a big nuclear reactor somewhere on the earth he could have done that he's creator, he could have done it but he spent way more energy than he needed to to make a sun that's 93 million miles away to get and then put the earth in just the right position that we would be not too warm and not too cold He created an earth and a universe of abundance. He he gave us water. We need water to live. But 72% of the earth's surface is covered by water, and most of that's about a mile deep. He didn't need to give us that much water to survive. But he created an abundance of water for us, just because he can. Why am I talking about all of this? What does that have to do with us? It has to do with this last point about the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath teaches us that the Sabbath is a time of gratitude. The Sabbath is a time of grace. But because of the, te- of the abundance that the Sabbath points to, the Sabbath is a time of giving. How many of us have enough and more? I'm, I'm not talking about what we think we have. None of us think we have enough, I suppose. But really, how many of us have enough air to breathe? Enough that we could spare with somebody else. No, I'm not being facetious because we don't even think about the air. There's such an abundance of air. How many of us have an abundance of the grace of God? How many of us have an abundance? Of resources that perhaps we could spend upon ourselves, but perhaps we could spend even better by sharing them with someone in need. Jesus taught this when he came to this earth in Luke chapter 13 and I'll, I'll end on this Luke chapter 13 and verse 10 we find this this story now he Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath and behold. There was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no wise raise herself up. Then Jesus said to her, but when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. Can you imagine this woman? She's crippling along. She can't even, no matter how she tries, she can't stand up. For 18 years, she's been a cripple. She comes to church. Jesus says, I'm going to make you free. He lays his hand on her. And immediately, for the first time in 18 years, she's able to stand up straight. There's so many examples of Jesus, miracles of healing. This is just one small example. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water? So ought not this woman. Being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosed from his bond on the Sabbath? And when he had said this, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for the glorious things that were done. We find in Mark uh, 2, verse 27, you know this verse as well, Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord, of the sabbath friends the sabbath is a time for us but not just a time for us it's a time for those who don't know about God it's a time for us to give of what we have to those who have never heard to loose them from the bonds of Satan it's a time for us to set aside our secular business in the worship of God and a time for us to give back to a world in need. When we realize the abundance that God has given to us, how can we hold that abundance within our hearts? Think about a stream in the desert, flowing down, flowing down, flowing down. The Jordan River is an example. It flows through the arid land of Palestine, and along its banks you will see the beauty that it brings the flowers and the trees that spring up because of its water. But it reaches a point, and sometimes, sadly, the grace of Christ in our hearts reach a point where it enters never to leave. And that point has received the water of that river for so long that it has become what we call today the Dead Sea. So much salt has collected in that body of water that nothing can survive. And that's my appeal to you today. What will you be? Will you be a river, a conduit of God's grace and love and abundance flowing into you in order to flow through you to impart life not only to yourself but to those around you? Or will you be like the Dead Sea receiving of God's abundance but hoarding it to ourselves in a sense of scarcity and an idea that if I don't hold on to everything I will lose something friends the only way that we can gain is by giving the only way we can receive more is by giving of what we have already received it comes down to one simple question how do you see God do you trust him Do you believe in the abundance of resources that he has? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Why do you worry? Consider the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. God asks something of you very simple. Give back to me the time that I have set aside for you I've made a date with you, a special time, each and every week. I've put it on my calendar. Won't you put me on your calendar? Isaiah 58, 13. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing your own ways or finding your own pleasure or speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. O Lord, we thank you and praise you because of the abundant and manifold gifts that you have given to us, not the least of which is a special day of rest each week on the sabbath day lord may we be not a dead end but a conduit of your grace that it may flow through us to others giving life both to the receiver and the giver in jesus name amen